Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. It's very, very coarsely tied to options theory that when you are trend following, you are delta replicating a straddle. Yep. And so when markets go up, you get more long. As they go down, you get more short. And that creates a very mechanical convexity. And just like options hedgers, the ability to perfectly replicate that delta is going to create slippage in your PL. You're going to see whipsaw. But it is sort of by definition, mechanically convex to those price movements. So that's one part of it, which is, you know, the payoff profile should look like a parabola. Okay, welcome back to another episode of The Derivative. I'm your host, Jeff Malik. And think we're going to have fun with today's guest whose skill set stretches across research, podcasting, investment strategy, and running an ETF. We're joined today by Corey Hofstein, co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research and host of the popular investing podcast, Flirting with Models. Welcome, Corey. You can't say that name without me, uh, me chuckling a little, Flirting with Models. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. This is going to be fun. So uh, how did that name come to be? That is one of the oh, best. Oh, boy best pod names out there for sure. I think that one came to me in, in perhaps my more juvenile years. I, I ran a blog a long time ago that had the name Flirting with Models. And then when I started my firm, I think it just carried over to, to our firm blog. And then when it came to doing a podcast, it was just sort of brand at that point. Um, I don't know. You know, it's one of those, we do all sorts of quantitative stuff uh, and we like to flirt, flirt with those quantitative models. And my wife thought it was funny. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I have permission, I guess. We have uh, Bastian Balesta of Deepfield. He was on the pod once telling a story about he was on the couch in his house listening to your pod and the wife like came over and saw the phone and like, what, are you, what is this flirting with models? What are you doing? It's like, it's work. It's work. It's research. I swear it's work. Well, I, I had my wife, I was playing my podcast once listening to something on repeat from a guest and she walked in and she's like, who are these nerds? And I was like, yeah. oh, I can't let her know this is my podcast. <laughs> Nerd. My yeah. daughter I made her listen to a few of ours and we get on a drive and she's like halfway through. She's like, can we read a book or do something different? <laughs> Any, anything else. Anything I'm else. like, one day you'll appreciate it. One day. Um, so where in the world are you right now? You're usually in LA, but you're usually in-, in LA outside of Boston right now on Cape Cod. Okay. And you're on Cape Cod. Nice. What yeah. part? Uh, in, in around the Bourne area. Okay. Yeah. So Katomit, technically, sort of North Falmouth area. And, you know uh, and so normally in LA, what part of LA? So um, my wife and I actually sort of were bi-coastal for a very long time. I lived in Boston for seven, eight years. She was out in the LA area and we went back and forth, had a place in West Hollywood at one point. Um, after we got married, she gave me the ultimatum that we were moving to LA. So I said, my ultimatum was fine. We got to be on the beach if you're going to drag me to LA, which, yeah. I mean, 
dragged to LA. I, it, who gets dragged to LA? It's a nice place to be. Yeah. So we ended up choosing to live right on the Santa Monica Venice line. So we can go north to Santa Monica where it's a little more put together. Or we can go south to Venice where it's a little grungier, a little more fun, a little more artsy. And that was, uh, I got a buddy out in Santa Monica. That was amazing to see the riots and all the action. We're recording this on uh, June 3rd. So right in the middle of all this action. So in Santa yeah. Monica, which seems not the place you'd typically see that. I was not expecting that in Santa Monica, but uh, it, it, there's a lot of action going on everywhere. I think there's a lot, of, a lot of places around the country where you're seeing that. So I can't be surprised by anything at this point, right? Yeah, hopefully your your house is still there when you get back. Well, I, I don't expect my car to be there, to be quite honest. But at this point, it's a 10 or 12-year-old car. So if it's on fire and I can collect some insurance, that, that might be worth more than the car at this point. So that wouldn't be a bad thing. Done. Uh, and I see we're fellow uh, upstate New York college peeps. So I went to school at Union College in Schenectady. Oh, yeah, I know Union. Absolutely. Yeah, that's Absolutely. the only other people who know it are people from Cornell. Upstate, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> RIT yeah, so or RPI, all those. So I actually met my wife at RIT. I went there my freshman year, and then within three months knew I didn't want to be there anymore. Transferred out and uh, ended up at Cornell. Nice. And you're from Boston area originally? Yeah, originally from outside of Worcester, a really small town called Southborough. Worcester, which is Worcester. spelled like for people not from Boston, it's Worcester, right? Exactly. Well, that's like everything in this area. Nothing <laughs> sounds like the way it's spelled. Um. And so got out of Boston and went to, so RIT, what's it, Rochester Institute Yeah, Technology. Rochester Institute of Technology. So I, I had this idea when I was younger that I was going to program video games for a living. And I actually, very early on, my father was an entrepreneur in the technology space, was always around computers. And for whatever reason, when I was 12 or 13, taught myself how to program. And a lot of my original, you know, things that I was programming was I was using things like QBasic to write really simple games. I just had this idea that I wanted to program video games. Uh, ended up continuing to do that as a hobby all throughout high school, as you can imagine, very popular on a Friday night. Uh, <laughs> and I decided I wanted to attend school somewhere where I could pursue computer science for my undergraduate. Went to RIT, very quickly realized this was not a career I actually wanted, that I did not, I, I loved it as a hobby but the idea yeah. of sitting behind a computer all day writing code was just not for me. Um, but still wanted to finish my computer science degree, but ultimately felt like I had to pursue a different direction. So um, ended up leaving RIT, going to Cornell, finishing my computer science degree. And while at Cornell, really fell in, this, fell in love with the concept in the world of quant investing. Um, I don't think I fully realized the full scope of what everything was that was quant, but I knew I, I wanted to pursue my sort of MFE equivalent. So I applied to Carnegie Mellon's Master's of Computational Finance program, which is one of the oldest MFE programs. I uh, was fortunate to get accepted. MFE's Master's of Financial Engineering? Exactly, exactly. So most of those programs are going to be sort of multidisciplinary programs that are gonna be a mix between statistics and probability, finance, computer science, and stochastic calculus is sort of its own coursework. A lot of it at the time when I went 2010, 2011 was still preparing you very heavily for sell side where you would probably go be, either be a desk quant or sales and trading. A lot of it was interest rate derivatives, credit derivatives. I think the demand has shifted to the buy side at this point. And so the coursework has changed subtly. Um, but for the most part, it's all about pricing derivatives, understanding risk and that sort of thing. And, and so you're that a little, was, 
you're a little younger than I am, so I don't feel like that was around back at, for sure it wasn't around at Union College, but uh, it seems yeah, it's, that all MFE concepts a little newer. It's definitely picked up. Um, I think the original program started in the late 90s, mid 90s, so that they were there. But again, so I think Carnegie Mellon was one of the first, uh, it was called the Computational Finance Program. No one else adopted that name. So no one has any idea what the degree means, but they all sort of chose this financial engineering nomenclature. And every program's a little different. I think, again, people are still trying to figure out what it means to get a degree in financial engineering. The basics are there, but what each school tends to focus on seems to be a little bit different. Yeah, and we just, on a couple pods ago, we had, we're working with a group at a University of Illinois and the UCLA MFE um, graduates through our university program, and they're helping... Uh, basically build a factor model for sports team valuations. Yep. So it's super cool to like hear all these, our world stuff in the investing world, but it's for sports team valuations. And they were coming up with, you know, fans in the stadium doesn't really matter. It's more of like the, if you have a star player, if you have this and television okay. rights and all this stuff. So I feel like that everything's just blurring between quant and non-quant, right? Like it's going across all lines. I think, I think you're finding that just the world of data is becoming very important everywhere and the skills of being able to analyze and think thoughtfully about utilizing data, model it, use it to forecast, obviously very applicable in finance, but very applicable in everything else in the world. So I, I, the skills are becoming transferable. It's a question of, do you have the niche knowledge then to put it into work? For sure. The, uh, my son, I was toying around, he was getting bored with his math at school, so I was trying to find a uh, statistics, uh, but more of like data analysis course. And LA actually is trying to put this into the schools. Mm. And there's a free program out there. And I was, it was a little too much of a project for me to implement at home. But I like the idea of like, because hey, they don't teach data analysis at you know grade school level for sure, and not even yeah. high school level mostly. So I feel like that's a skill people need moving forward for sure. I I feel the same way about programming as a skill. I'm, I'm amazed that there isn't more emphasis on programming as a skill in high school statistics understanding in high school. I mean, there's, there's people who are truly probability illiterate and um, understanding probability is just such a big part of life to me to not understand how things can play out. I think um, gives you a more narrow view of, of what the world could be. For sure. The, um, and so moving on the, uh, I was hearing you on Resolve's happy hour the other day of who can lift more, Nassim Taleb or you? What, what's yeah. that all about? I don't know. I honestly don't know where that <laughs> came from. I, I think I've developed this um, a bit of a reputation for being a, a gym rat. Uh, it's funny on, on places like Twitter where I'm pretty active and there's a really big community. Um, a lot of people follow me for the research that I post and, and sort of the conversations, but I do post, you know, I, I'm really into fitness. So I love running. I love snowboarding. I love going to the gym when the gyms were open. If I hit a PR, I would push it up there. And a bunch of friends in the industry are also really into that stuff. So we would share and congratulate each other. And there's some people who really hate it. A lot of people would say, Hey, I don't follow you to see you deadlifting in the gym. <laughs> you know, then tune me out is my right. view. Um, but I, I think I think someone was sort of I mean, Nassim is well known for talking about his deadlifting. So I think someone was having a little, little bit of fun poking fun. Yeah. Me, so but to me, so I used to do uh, competitive lifting in high school in Florida. Really? Yeah. So it was deadlift and bench press. And then I moved over to like Olympic clean and jerk and all that. Oh, stuff. Wow. But it was fun for a while. But yeah, I'm a 
shadow of that former self but well the the irony for me is i am amazingly weak for someone yeah. my size i'm like six four 200 plus pounds i should be a lot stronger and i am pathetically weak so a lot of people think i'm bragging when i'm showing my lifts and anyone who knows anything about lifting i mean you would just sit there and go like this is such a joke for someone that big so yeah i think i in uh i think it was my senior year at the competition i lost to a uh, a woman or a girl i guess we were boys and girls in high school but uh, who out deadlifted me. So that was the end of my competitive lifting career. Those Olympic lifts take a lot of skill. It's amazing yeah, when, it when you see someone quickness. Who, yeah, who really knows the technique, how, how much less effort they have to put in with the correct technique. I'm sure it's like all things in life, but it is when you see someone do it correctly, it's like, I didn't realize how poor I was at doing this until I saw someone who's truly skilled. Um, yeah, agreed. And so when you, you left college and went straight into Newfound. You founded it right out of college. Yeah, so I have a bit of a, a weird story with Newfound. So the name Newfound is actually a lake that my family used to go visit in New Hampshire. And so when I was an undergrad, I knew I wanted to go into this field of quantitative finance. I did a couple internships, mostly around, and I didn't even realize it at the time, but I was really doing factor scoring which I had no idea, but I was working with an SMA manager who was building a portfolio of single name equities in the dividend growth space. And I was identifying characteristics that were predictive of future one, two, three year cross-sectional returns. Had no idea that was factor investing, but that's what I was <laughs> doing. Um, and along with that, I, I ended up um, working on a lot of models that were sort of more macroeconomic in nature tilted more towards market risk. I just, I tend to tilt towards a more risk view of things than a return view of things. At the time, I uh, was also one of, I sort of had two internships. The, the second internship was with my father's financial advisor. And what I would do is interview managers that would come in. Nice. And I remember in summer 2007, there was one manager came in, it was a small cap value manager, ran a mutual fund, and I, before the meeting started, asked him what he thought of the market. And he just gave me the most bearish prognostication I'd ever heard. I mean, I was young, <laughs> right? But, I, but it was just so bearish. And it was in 07? It was in 07. So was, he was right. And I was really blown away. And I was like, so what are you going to do about this, man? And he was like, well, by mandate, I have to be 95% invested. And my job as a PM is to create the best small cap value exposure I can. And look, at the end of the day, I don't even know who's invested in my fund. It's really up to the individual and their advisor to determine if the risk of my fund is right for them. I said, that's a pretty thoughtful answer. I get that. So after the meeting, I talked to my father's financial advisor and I say, you know, sorry, tell him what happened. I said, what do you think of that? And he said, I think that's crazy. He's supposed to be an expert in small cap value. If he doesn't think the risk is right, he shouldn't be investing the money. Yeah. If he, right, if the outlook isn't good, how am I supposed to know if it's a good time or not for small cap value? And I said, well, that's also a really good point. <laughs> and, all, and all I saw was two people pointing the finger at each other. And, you know, at the time I had my, pretty much my life savings invested in the market. And I said, oh, no one's managing my risk here. And to me, risk was just preservation of capital. And so I went down this whole rabbit hole of, uh, thinking about building models that could help manage risk and ultimately ended up discovering trend following as being one of the core techniques there. Next summer, I end up getting introduced to another asset manager who sees what I'm working on, gets interested in licensing the model that I've built, sort of these buy and sell, sell trend following signals. 
I'm a broke college student planning on going to grad school. I say, great, let's do it. Uh, he ends up offering me basis points. Didn't even know what a basis point was, but yeah. that's how we were going to do it. Sure, I'll uh, take some. Yeah, sure, whatever. Again, if I can get $500 to buy some beer, that would be fantastic. <laughs> um, and ended up creating a company called Newfound Research because it was named after a lake I used to go visit and was very fond of, and we were providing research. Figured the company would shut down in a year. Uh, ended up going to grad school, and at that time, the manager that I has licensing the signals to the data ended up getting a sub-advisory agreement and really starting to grow. And I saw this appetite for tactical ETF strategies out there in the market, and I said, you know, I can always come back to work at a bank on Wall Street. The opportunities to have a business that is now cash flow positive, and I see a need in the marketplace, and to try to make this my own, you don't always get that opportunity. And so. After grad school, I said, I'm just going to try this entrepreneurial thing and uh, I've been very fortunate that it's worked out ever since. And what, what time frame is that? What year is this? Oh, nine-ish? Yeah. So the company was founded in August, 2008. Yeah. And then I got out of grad school in December, 2010. Yeah. And so you, you see all those studies of people who graduated in that time period had a heck of a time getting jobs. Like their yeah. rate is way higher than... Uh, all else being held equal, way higher than uh, other people. So my, I remember at my college commencement in spring 2009 at Cornell, the, the, the one of the speakers said, you know, you should be really, really proud of yourselves. 30% of you have jobs. And I was like, oof, 30% yeah. of us coming from an Ivy League school have jobs in spring 2009. Like, I can't imagine how the rest of the world is doing. So it was, it was pretty eye-opening from the, again, like the, your little bubble that you live in seeing like this is not a good economy. Isn't Cornell known like the suicide capital of the, of the yes. world, that yeah. bridge and the gorge. What is that, that all about? Yeah. Yeah. So my light real quick. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't know if it's actually true or not. I, I mean, that's, that's always been the rumor, but there are these beautiful, beautiful natural gorges in the Ithaca area. And basically the, as it goes, Cornell is such a difficult school, especially the engineering college. And you have these gorges that are just such an easy way for a student who's suffering depression or having issues coping uh, for them to take their own life. And so it's when the means is there, I guess it makes it easier for it to actually happen. And so there's, I guess, just a higher suicide rate at Cornell, or, or at least that's um, at least what I heard going through Cornell. Yeah, the urban urban legend. Yeah, I never actually checked the numbers there. Every school thinks it's the hardest school, so for sure. Um, and you guys had a heck of a basketball team right around that time too, right? Didn't they win yeah. a few tournament games? Yeah, there were, if I remember correctly, and I wasn't really that into sports at the time. So I think they were really well known for their hockey team that by the time I got there was sort of going downhill a little bit. Uh, the basketball team went on, I think a great run. It was either my junior or senior year. Um, but again, it's a little weird because I, they played in the Ivy league. So it's sort of like getting to sort of uh, March madness from the Ivy league, I think is easier <laughs> than, yeah. than other leagues, of course. Um, but there's still some decent teams that, that they were competing against and did pretty well. And then their lacrosse team was quite good. Uh, yeah. My senior spring, I think they went all the way to the championship and were playing Syracuse, which was the school my brother was going to. And so we had a, an absolute heck of a, a battle during that game. But, yeah, uh, I remember going to a game in the Syracuse Dome, a lacrosse game as, as a fan. And there were probably 
20,000 people there. Or yeah, it's, I mean, it's a like, fun wow, game. It's a fun intense. game. And the, and the Syracuse students love to go to those games. One of my best friends went to Syracuse and I would visit him all the time to go watch basketball or lacrosse. And it's just a blast. So going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the uh, firm and your strategy. So usually we ask managers to give the elevator pitch of their strategy but uh, I don't know if that really applies to you and what you guys are doing with a bunch of different strategies and doing a lot of bespoke work. Yeah, so maybe give us the uh, elevator pitch on, on the firm. Or yeah. the, elevator, the elevator pitch on the firm is that we believe that first and foremost, investors need to focus on risk. And so what we ultimately aim to do is provide risk-managed strategies that allow them to meaningfully participate in equity market growth and try to avoid those severe and prolonged drawdowns that can be really adverse to their ability to achieve their financial goals. For us, it really does tie back to that, that ultimate, what do you need this money for and, and how are you trying to use it and thinking about how all this fits together. Um, but for a lot of people who are near or entering retirement, there's a tremendous amount of sequence risk that they face. And so that if we can help reduce volatility without necessarily creating as much reliance on fixed income as you've traditionally seen, we think that we can help them navigate that sequence risk problem without necessarily creating a huge fixed drag that comes in the lower expected returns that are related to fixed income. And so the way in which we do that is by um, trying to apply quantitative signals to asset allocation and tilt more towards equities when we think there are stronger signals that are supporting equity market growth and tilt away towards equity, tilt away from equities when we see the opposite situation. Uh, and so there's several strategies inside of that. Yeah. So we have a, a number of different strategies that we offer in, SMA and mutual fund format, um, whether it's a tilt towards global equities, US equities, a sector-based framework, a factor-based framework. Um, but the same overarching thesis is very similar. It's this protect and participate mandate that we're seeking to hit. I like that. And you get a lot of the, so or I'll just say, what you consider yourselves an alts firm or an equities firm or neither? You know, we probably fall more towards the alts than we do equities, but alts in my mind tend to truly try to focus on creating an idiosyncratic return stream. Our view is we're trying to ultimately harvest the equity risk premium over the long run, but we're trying to recognize that there are certain market environments where we think we can create an edge via signals like trend following, because if we can remove ourselves from the equation through liquid markets, either through explicit hedges or actually just exiting the market entirely, and we can avoid those significant and prolonged drawdowns that occur, um, then we can actually come out ahead in the full market cycle. And as naive as it sounds to say, for example, why do you think you can just use trend following to get out of equity markets? We think that there are uh, basically market structure pressures and liquidity needs that occur during bear markets that if you can be a nimble enough player and get out, you can tend to see um, market continuation. And so we think there's a lot of potential advantage in being nimble in your asset allocation in ways that a lot of other market participants can't be. Yeah, and I'd say what differentiates you, you guys from other alts firms I see is that concept of participation, right? So, and I've been banging this drum for a long time of 
especially in the managed futures and trend following space when they've been struggling for nine plus years. I tell my son, he's 11, that we've been in drawdown his whole life. Um, you know, of what do they do? Like, do you stick to your knitting? As an investor, I'd love to have just pure premia. Like I'm hiring you just for this sole purpose, but they have families, they have kids to feed, they have, right? So right. them the best model. If you came to them as the only investment advisor on earth, they'd say, okay, you should mix some equities, you should mix this. So it boils down to all these asset management firms of, okay, do I give them the whole enchilada of what I think's best in a, in a portfolio or just the slice of premium that they need? Well, and it's an interesting question about how products are distributed in our industry as well, which is there's very much the tilt towards, hey, focus on your premium. Don't give us the whole thing because we want to pick the best managers for each slice and we know how we want to build and optimize the portfolio. And so then as a manager, you are inherently restricted to providing a particular style, right? And they don't want style drift. But then as soon as your style is out of favor, the question is, well, what are, you, right, what are you doing to fix this or we're leaving? And you say, well, you hired me for this purpose. If, if I fix it, then it becomes an issue of I, I can't get hired for this purpose anymore. So it's very, it puts you between a rock and a hard place. And it's an interesting question about how we think about as an industry, profit distribution, and are we doing it really the right way? Yeah, and I think you see a lot of the biggest of the big hedge fund firms, right, aren't just a single fund. They've got flavor A, flavor B, levered this with equity. So they're, they're right. doing this internally. Just They probably got lucky with their single model that raised enough <clears throat> assets that allowed them to spread out versus you yeah. got startup guys who, oh, I'm, my mandate's to stick to that strategy, and they might not make it. Well, it's hard, it's hard to do any one strategy well as a small firm if you're distracted by other strategies. But when you think about an asset management firm and how it generates its revenue, it's ultimately generating carry on its sort of asset, dollar-weighted asset exposure. So if you can be an asset management firm that's large enough that you have, oh, I've got an equity strategy over here and a, and a trend-following strategy over there and a fixed income strategy, and all together I look like this great 60-40 mix, well, then you might be able to survive just about any sort of market yeah. cycle that comes at you. The now, black one, rock model, right? right? Like exactly. They have so many strategies, they'll never have a drawdown. And exactly, but to do that as a small startup asset manager, I think is almost you got to hit that escape velocity with your one strategy first before you can start building that out. Totally agree. And uh, circle back to your sort of elevator pitch and your focus on risk. So what what does that mean to you, risk? So right, there's reams of studies and papers of if you're looking at volatility, if you're looking at drawdown, duration yep. of drawdown. So what, what do you view as quote unquote risk in that scenario? So I start with um, this higher framework where I just basically say investors really suffer one of two risks uh, at any given point. They have the risk of failing fast and the risk of failing slow. So in, in my framework, the risk of failing slow is basically you have far dated liabilities that unless you invest aggressively enough and try to harvest the risk premium, uh, you could fail to ultimately meet them. So maybe you're a young investor who's saving for a future retirement. Unless you save sufficiently and invest aggressively enough, you're ultimately going to lose to inflation over time. So that's the risk of failing slowly. You need to, to be aggressive. The risk of failing fast is the exact opposite, which is 
you are probably currently in withdrawal of your portfolio. You've taken all your human capital and translated it into investment capital over time. You now want to live on that investment capital and a sudden and severe drawdown creates permanent impairment. So that's the risk of, of failing slowly. What's really interesting thinking about this is, go ahead. You flipped them, but yeah, the oh, sorry. second one was yes. quickly. Risk of failing quickly, sorry, yes. Um, what's really interesting is this is very naturally like the progression of a young investor to an old investor, but you can fit an endowment or an institution in this framework by saying they're sort of right in the middle, right? An endowment has cash flow that they're taking out each and every year, so they do have a risk of failing fast. If they have yeah. too large a drawdown, it, it creates a very large issue for them in being able to uh, create the cash flow and sustain the cash flow but they also have 100-year mandates. Right, they want so the money they, to be there for hundreds of years. And so they have the risk of failing slow. And so what you find is, well, risk of failing slow, you need to be aggressive. Risk of failing fast, you need to be conservative. You know, endowments find themselves somewhere in the middle and they find themselves in a balanced portfolio. We tend to think that risk of failing fast, risk of failing slow, excuse me, is just, you just gotta bear risk. You just gotta, buy uh, equities, if you can have some a levered portfolio of diversified assets, even better. It's the risk of failing fast that we say, let's focus on that. A, because from a dollar-weighted perspective, it's a bigger problem in the industry. And B, we can explicitly measure it as drawdown risk. So to come back to your original question, it's really that peak to trough drawdown risk, because when it comes to investors starting to make withdrawals from their portfolio, those withdrawals that are normally fixed dollar tend to become a larger proportion of their capital as that drawdown gets deeper. And so for us trying to mitigate the size of that drawdown becomes really important. And so no nod to the drawdown duration there, because you, right, if yep. say the flash crash, whenever that was, 2010, steep drawdown, but didn't even register on an end-of-day basis. So there's yeah. things, that's an extreme example, but right, you could argue that any asset class that snaps back quickly, I'm not as concerned about the drawdown. Counter-argument would be that, to that would be, well, you never know it's gonna snap back that quickly in the future. No, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, there is, there is certainly a uh, both depth and timing aspect of it. You could almost tie it up in one of, the, one of the metrics we really like to look at is the ulcer index, right? Which is going to look at both the frequency and depth of drawdowns. And um, ideally what you're trying to do is reduce that ulcer index where you want to have less frequent and more shallow drawdowns. You want to continue to be making new equity curve highs uh, more frequently. Yeah, and I think bringing it back to managed futures has had, right? Their ulcer index has been painful Yes. Yeah. But not from a magnitude, but just the time of uh, right. you know, how long you've been underwater. Absolutely. How long and how long can I just keep the death of a thousand cuts type of deal? So let's get into that with uh, trend following a little bit. Uh, so it seems like you're still a big proponent of trend following, but I'm taking that you mean just on equities or as a kind of quote unquote managed futures global portfolio kind of look? So I like both. Um, a lot of the, the, our research focus and the way we implement is explicitly on equities. My view there is simply that investors, most investors aren't working with a risk parity portfolio. So if you started with a risk parity portfolio and everyone started there, I would say then yes, we probably want to use managed futures as the way of managing that risk. But given that most investors we end up dealing with have something that's more like a 
the majority of their risk is coming from equity. And so for us, we want to more explicitly focus on trend following on equities to try to hedge that very explicit source of risk in their portfolio. Because what we're ultimately trying to do is create a negatively correlated return stream, whereas trend following for, or at least managed futures, diversified trend following for all the claims of crisis alpha, it's more of a decorrelated strategy. Yeah. And unpack what you mean real quickly on if they started at risk parity, just if their bond risk was equal to their equity risk, et cetera. No, I just even a truly more diversified core that is more, so your, your bond risk is equal to your uh, equity risk. You have commodities in there. You might have currency exposure, whatever it is, you have a strategy that actually more closely resembles what a managed future strategy would look like if all the trends were positive. Got it, got it. And you right. can sort of then think of it as At, adding- On the long side or something, yeah. Yeah, on the long side. And then if you, if you were to add managed futures on top of it, it's very naturally a one-for-one connection of as this managed, as a certain contract goes negative, it's becoming a hedge for my passive book. What we're ultimately trying to do is, is recognize investors very naturally have a long-only stock bond portfolio. And not only that, they have a long-only stock bond portfolio that they, through rebalancing, create a concave payoff profile that they're constantly building a mean reversionary trade into their portfolio. And so by doing trend following on equities, we're allowing them to inject not only a potential risk management system for the largest risk in their portfolio, but actually inject uh, payoff diversification that you're creating a convex return profile. And so you're creating diversification sort of in a, not in the what you're investing in, but how you're making those investment decisions. Yeah, not, I've always argued that you have your career is sort of long equities as well, right? Like, absolutely, not, not perfectly tied to it, but you need a strong economy to get paid more money and um, all of that. Like, you're everyone's short vol essentially in their careers and their portfolios. So, help me understand. Like, I'm sure you've done the research in the past, and I haven't done it recently. But if you put every sector, energies, grains, currencies, fixed income, equities trend following bucket typically the equities is the worst performer there i don't know if that agrees with what you've seen but from what i've yeah. seen that typically the case gold is always really bad as well but yeah i but, think what you you would find is that bonds over the last 20 years 30 years have just been lights out one of the best sectors you could hit and then i think you typically find that there are certain uh metals grains and uh, that end up being streaky some yeah. are really good, some are really bad. I, I can't find rhyme or reason. I think there's people I would talk to who would probably argue it has to do with the participation of um, non-profit-seeking non actors in those markets, right? How much are people coming in to hedge? How badly do they need to hedge? Um, and I haven't found a good way to really model that out, nor has anyone I've spoken to really found a good way to model that participation and tie it back to the profitability of trend. But yeah, I... I I would say yeah. that if you look guys at guys' standpoint, Eric Crittenden, he's yep. got some research and work on that. Yeah, but I actually I just talked to him two days ago, which is <laughs> why I was top of mind. He's, yeah, he's yeah. a brilliant guy. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the equity space, I would say, probably hasn't been the largest driver of return in managed futures. But that's often because from a vol perspective, gets squeezed way down relative to bonds and bonds have just had been lights out. I think it's still very interesting on a standalone basis, particular when you consider that if you really want to hedge against the equity risk in a passive book, it is going to be the most direct mapping 
um, again, everything else is you're basically taking a, a basis risk. You're saying, I'm hoping that trends emerge in gold. I'm hoping yeah. that there's a flight to safety premium in bonds that emerges that can offset equity losses. But I think it's much safer to assume decorrelation rather than negative correlation with those trades. Yeah, we've I've been also hammering this for a while. Like, and that's the some of the sickness, quote unquote, that people are starting to have with managed futures of what I call there's too many ifs. Like, oh, it's going to cover your crisis if you didn't come into the crisis long equities, if you didn't come in short bonds. Like all these ifs, if palladium somehow rallies, or like you know right. all these different path dependencies that people are just sick of. I'm like, hey, I just want it to rally when I need it to rally when the market. Right. Well, so and going back to that that sort of relative um, business trade, right? Everyone is so equity centric. Everyone is so 60, 40 centric that I think if you were to step back and everyone were to wipe the slate clean and say, starting fresh, what would be the best portfolio we could build? There might be more emphasis on things like risk parity if it weren't so difficult to access from a, just a pure diversification argument. I think there might be more argument as to why managed futures is maybe a, I should be a core component but we don't sort of live in that counterfactual world. We live in a world where everything is 60-40 and you have to deal with that relative trade and how it's being measured. And if you have five years of underperformance, it's just very hard to communicate that to an investor who maybe isn't as savvy about all the diversification benefits that it might have, could have, should have brought. Right, but, and there's also math to it too, right? Of eventually the bleed at some point outweighs the gain. Like right. say, it's, say managed futures is flat or down 1% for 20 years, right? Is that bleed worth the worth what you saved in 2008? So at some point there, there's a trade-off of like, hey, it wasn't worth what I gained. Maybe it was from an emotional bias standpoint and a ability to stick with my rest of my portfolio standpoint, but from a pure math, there's definitely a point there. I've been paying insurance on my car. I've been paying insurance yeah. on my house and my apartment. I've never been robbed, never had an issue. Uh, never had an issue with my car, never needed any of that insurance. I'm not going to do the, go the resulting route and say that insurance wasn't worth it. So I understand what you're saying. And I, I think it is very hard to explain that to investors who often look at the way markets play out and see it as the only path markets could have taken. But I think people who participate in markets day to day realize just the sheer randomness of day to day market action and how disconnected markets can be from economic fundamentals, uh, how, how much they can be driven by the animal spirits, how much they can be driven by um, positioning of market participants in ways that I, I don't know if your average investor really understands. And so when I look at it and say, if I could buy managed futures um, and for all the potential positive qualities they have, if 10 years from now, I still have a negative return, was it worth it? Well, there are so many ways in which the world could play out over 10 years. You just have to sort of think of it as the insurance cost. Yeah. And it's somewhat like athletes, right? A process versus outcome. Like your process yeah. was sound. Everything you were doing was sound. The outcome didn't turn out like you wanted it to, but you have to separate the two. Absolutely. Uh, and so coming back to that, so just because equities is the worst performer of sectors inside of trend following, it doesn't mean it's a bad signal to use for risk on or risk off is kind of 
or tilting one way or the other. Absolutely. I think what's what's particularly interesting is trying to isolate a given sector within within a trend following mandate is really hard because you have a lot of things going on, right? Not only are you talking about the actual trend signals you're looking at, but you're also looking at the relative sizing and the risk positioning. Often a lot of managed futures have a target risk profile. So what you end up finding is that when equity markets sell off, um, you end up in a position where your equity position within managed futures gets de-risked substantially because equity vol is going up. Yep. And so the ability for equities to actually hedge during that environment, even if you get the call correct, goes way down. Versus if you're purely just saying, I am going to one for one hedge long or short, you know, I'm going to go long equities when there's a positive trend and short equal notional amount equities when there's a negative trend, you create that one for one hedge. I think there's substantial evidence that that can, that can be uh, a meaningful way to balance your risk in your equity book over the long run. And who is it? Is it Paul Tudor Jones with just, you'll never go broke with a 200 day moving average or. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if I agree. You'll never go broke. You'll just go broke really, really slowly. Yeah. Right. And that's, and that's sort of the thing about trend following is you're going to take a lot of small losses, which can be really frustrating. I think trend following is really interesting as, as one of the few style premia and investment styles that I would say there's, there's really two important aspects to consider. Um, you know, other sort of equity long short, which I do a lot of investigation of, you look at that and you say, it's hard to disentangle where this return is coming from or why there should be a return. But I think a trend following, there's one aspect to it that I say trend following is a mechanically convex trading strategy that I like to say it's very, very coarsely tied to options theory, that when you are trend following, you are delta replicating a straddle. Yeah. And so when markets go up, you get more long. As they go down, you get more short. And that creates a very mechanical convexity. And just like options hedgers, the ability to perfectly replicate that delta is going to create slippage in your P&L. You're going to see whipsaw. But it is sort of by definition mechanically convex to those price movements. So that's one part of it, which is, you know, the payoff profile should look like a parabola. How deep those losses are or how much noise there is really depends on your implementation. The second part then is, okay, if I, why would I expect this mechanical convexity to necessarily um, create a, a premium over the long run? And that's sort of the premium question related to trend. And I think that goes into, okay, are there non-profit-seeking um, actors in the markets you're operating in? Or are there situations where you are going to exploit market autocorrelation due to potential liquidity reasons, right? Yeah. A market environment like 2008, where you may see there are forced fire sales that create autocorrelation in the market, that if you can be a nimble enough participant, you can get out, there's positive autocorrelation, trends continue, and you're able to avoid those continued sell-off and forced de-risking and margin calls and all that sort of stuff. So I think what's really interesting to me, at least about trend is I say, look, even if you don't believe the second part that this can create a positive premium, I think there's still a really strong argument why this can be interesting from a portfolio diversification standpoint because of that mechanical convexity aspect of it. Right, which I, I always call that of like, they're, it's not magic. They're not guessing there's going to be a big downtrend in oil in 2018 or 14, whenever that was. The, right, they're getting into every single move. And they're losing tons because a lot of them are false breakouts, but they're getting right. into almost every single move so they can guarantee to be in the big move that happens. Absolutely. So it's, it's mechanical.
we're talking all this trend following and it seems, and we mentioned the 200 day moving average, right? So if I just do a simple trend following model with the 200 day moving average, I could be looking great or I could be in a lot of trouble. So it seemed, you've done a lot of yeah. work on saying, hey, let's focus more on the signal by building an ensemble approach instead of just figuring out, okay, we're using 213 days or whatever yeah. test best. So if we take a step back and say, okay, I believe in this trend following thing. I, I think at the very least, I'm going to believe in this mechanical convexity. How do we measure a trend? And my buddy Meb Faber wrote a very popular paper where he used a 10-month moving average. Yep. Uh, Gary Antonacci wrote a very popular paper in a book where he used 12-month total returns. AQR wrote some, a lot of papers with 12-month total returns. And all of these models and their specifications seem to have a lot of efficacy uh, when tested historically. You look at Meb's 10-month moving average and you apply it to a whole bunch of different markets and it seems to do a really good job of meaningfully participating and cutting the drawdowns, similar to the 12 months, similar to the 200 day. And so the question becomes, which one do I pick? Yeah. And the problem becomes, what do you do when your 200 day moving average signal is positive, but your 12 month total return signal is negative? How do you sort of justify choosing one model over another? And so a lot of the research we did was take a step back and say, well, why, why would we make a choice? If we think that all of these models have some sort of um, positive signal, that there's efficacy to all of these approaches and all of these model specifications, why would I choose the 200-day over the 199-day? Is there something magical? Is there something special? And what we ultimately found was the answer was no. And so very much like we might think about diversifying a portfolio by buying a large number of stocks to get market beta and get rid of idiosyncratic equity risk, we might think about buying a large number of trend-following systems that are all slightly differently specified that together give us a more diversified ensemble of, of trend-following as a style and get rid of those idiosyncratic uh, model specification risks. Love it. And so, but there's a point of diminishing returns there. So do you have 500 different timeframes or five different timeframes? Like that's where it's, it gets. Hairy. It's definitely, yeah. I mean, I, I guess the question would be what you need to think about. And it, and it looks very much sort of when you, when you map this uh, mathematically, it looks very much like the volatility reduction of adding equities to your portfolio, right? You have one stock and we've all sort of seen those in those intro to finance courses, one stock in your portfolio, there's a lot of vol, then you add two and it starts dropping and then it keeps going until about 30, 40 stocks. Yeah. And then after that, it's just very marginal vol reduction benefit. Now, when you do this with trend following systems, here's what's really interesting it doesn't actually affect volatility all that much, which is a little, it does a little, um, I'm not gonna get into the math reasons of that, but not the same way you see it with equities. What it actually affects is what we would call your dispersion in terminal wealth. So if you were to do your back test and say, this is a totally valid trend following system, I'm gonna do my 200 day moving average, how growth of a dollar over time, and then I'm gonna do another trend following system, it's 10 month growth of a dollar over time. What you find is that there is, this dispersion in what that dollar grew to. And the more and more systems you add, so if you say, instead of just using one system, I'm gonna have five systems. Uh, all of that cluster of five systems, the dispersion in terminal wealth is gonna go down. If you compare a whole bunch of systems that are 30 system 
systems, system of systems, you're going to end up with way less dispersion again. And so what is that a word? I guess it's almost like a virtual fund of funds at the end of the day is what we're building. Yeah. And so what you see is this reduction in dispersion of terminal wealth. And so to your point, how many systems do you need? Well, it's tough to say because when you start looking at what creates diversification in a trend following model, it's both the model itself. So the way in which you're defining a trend and the sort of look back horizon, the speed that you're looking back. And so what's interesting about trend following signals is a lot of them are, are actually very close mathematical cousins. So um, when you look at prior 12 month returns, for example, all that's really saying is I'm going to equally weight the prior uh, 12 months of daily log returns. When you do a price minus moving average, what you're actually ultimately end up doing with that model is you're just reweighting those prior returns. Yeah. So all these interesting ways of trying to measure a trend really are just interesting ways of reweighting these prior returns that we're looking at. And so what you find is, you know, pure total return is sort of this equal linear weight across all prior weights. Uh, price minus moving average model is very front weighted and a dual moving average crossover is very back weighted. So you can get some diversification in terms of, well, where am I weighting my, my views as to which prices are important? And then is, the question is, okay, do I want a fast model? Do I want a slow model, intermediate model? And all of those bring other diversification benefits. So I would say to you that a, a portfolio comprised of a couple short, couple medium, couple long of different trend models is going to be a lot more diversified than 500 intermediate term with the same yeah. model type. So it's, it's hard to sort of answer how much is enough because it comes down to which types of models are you including in the specifications that you're including. Yeah, and I feel a lot of the biggest trend followers in the world are definitely doing this internally, right? Yeah. Um, of, and they'll, they'll probably tilt more short or more long based on their kind of philosophy and their investor preferences, but they're definitely combining the models. So to that point of these guys are so big, and if you're gonna have all those models, so you're just using it as a filter, right? For the most part, if you were well, actually trading it, it seems to me that you'd run into a granularity problem really quickly. So you don't actually, so you think of it as this massive fund of vir virtual fund of funds, right? I mean, from a quant perspective, there's nothing that prohibits me from having 30,000 different model specifications, right? I could yeah. have a 199 day moving average, a 200 day moving average, or 201 day. I mean, there's literally, from a quantitative computational perspective, very easy to do. Um, from an actual implementation perspective, I'm not treating those as all individual models, right? That I'm gonna go trade my contracts in each model because you're gonna have massive netting effects. And so what yeah. you wanna do is roll up all those positions together and let the, let the different uh, models net out. And what you end up getting is almost, you can almost think of it as like a confidence dial that yeah, when like all of the, a voting machine, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of having a, a binary light switch of a single signal, you're getting something that's gonna look a lot more like a dimmer switch that's gonna be very much based upon this idea of, of model confidence. Um, when all of the models are signaling the same direction, you're gonna get a much stronger signal. Um, so from that perspective, you're not necessarily getting all these, these micro trades that are happening. Still, you are going to want to be cost and commission conscious, right? If you're running 30,000 models and one of those models keeps flicking on and off, 
you don't want to be making a basis point single contract trade left and right. right. You're going to, you know, from an actual practical implementation perspective, you're going to want to look at things like, okay, how much turnover does this actually create? What's the cost of the turnover? What's my true model portfolio? What's my tracking error to that true model portfolio? And you're going to run some sort of sort of cost benefit optimization there as to when you should be making these trades and are they of substantial size that it actually is going to be impactful for your PNL uh, net a commission. Yeah, I'm looking at it more from say I've got 20 models and it's max confidence, all 20 are long NASDAQ or whatever, and I need 20 NASDAQ futures in my portfolio. Um, so right I would act. I need I would, a starting balance big enough to allow that max position. So I would, I would actually think about it as, again, this virtual fund of funds. If I, if I was saying I only ever want to have one contract, and it doesn't really work with just one contract, but bear with me. Let's say we could have partial contracts. If I just wanted to have one contract, I would be allocating 1 20th of that contract to each of the systems. Yeah, yeah. And so if all of them are on, I'm just buying one contract. If half of them are on, I'm buying half of a contract. So okay. you're never, you're not going to say I need 20 times the capital to run 20 times these systems. Again, you can almost think of yourself as a, as a fund of funds. You're taking your money and divvying it up equally across these different models. Agree. Um, so we had a question on Twitter for you. I don't know when we reached out, but um, all right, before I go to that question, I just want to ask you, so the, in this ensemble approach, you're considering it just for the trend following signals or do you consider it across all the portfolio and all the strategies that you're doing? So this is where you get into some really nuanced mathematics. Um, my view, my view is that you should do the ensemble. You should build your full portfolio. So for each sort of specification, model decision, look back, and let's just keep it a trend to keep life simple. You would build what that portfolio would look like. And then at the very end, you would have, a, let's say we had 20 different models. We would end up with 20 different portfolios that we would average together. And the reason behind doing it that way rather than averaging the signals is if you only average the signals together, all you're doing is creating one new signal. Yeah. You're not actually getting the benefits of the ensemble, particularly if your portfolio construction has nonlinear elements to it. So if you're running some sort of, let me pass my trend following signals into a mean variance optimization, that's gonna result in nonlinear output, if you're combining all of those signals prior to the optimization, you're just basically creating one new signal versus what you really want to do to maximize the benefits of the diversification is do it after that sort of nonlinear step. So for folks who are familiar maybe with some more obscure mathematical stuff, this is the basic idea here is Jensen's inequality, which is basically that the expectation of a function is not equal to the function applied on the expectation. And it's this weird idea of concavity and convexity, um, but it's a really important and subtle nuance here that I think a lot of people get wrong when they try to introduce diversification of models. They start at the top, they get all these trend signals, they might get a three-month, six-month, 12-month return, and then they average them together. And all they've done is created one signal. They haven't actually really benefited from diversification. So it's like a play on that the sum is greater than the parts of the sum of the parts is greater than the sum. Yes, uh, cl close to that, yeah. Close to that. The, um, and so, but I was going out, so on the portfolio level, on each of your strategies though, if you're doing fixed income, are you running ensemble of fixed income approaches as well? Yeah, 
Yeah. So uh, if we are like a tactical fixed income mandate that we manage, we actually have five sleeves within that mandate. So we take a sort of style driven approach. There's a value sleeve, there's a momentum sleeve, a carry sleeve. Um, within that carry sleeve, we have a number of different models in which we use to measure carry. And so what we would do is for each of those models and that measure of carry, we would create a portfolio. And then at the end, when we go to build that sleeve, we would average all those portfolios together. Got it. Instead of the signal. And what's, what consideration is there given for correlation and max drawdown across the signals, things of that nature? Or do they stand alone and just, this is a good standalone signal, we're going to add it to the ensemble? So that's a really, really good question. Um, I, I would say you need to be thoughtful, either you need to be thoughtful at the top and say, I'm going to only pick signals that I know are going to create diversification, right? So to your point, um, if I said, I'm going to have one short-term signal, a hundred intermediate term signals and one long-term signal, yeah. and I'm going to flow it all through and come up with, you know, I don't know, 102 portfolios and average them together. Well, I'm still very, very weighted on intermediate. So to your point, you either need to, at the top, choose an array of signals that are appropriately diversified so that when you just equal weight average at the bottom, you're okay, or at the bottom, you need to do some sort of weighted average to take into account that diversification aspect. Yeah, and I call this concept uh, fundamental versus statistical correlation. Mm. So, and we see this with investors all the time on our platform, they grab three or four hedge funds, they run the correlations, they're not correlated, and then something happens and they lose money and they're saying, why did I lose money? I'm like, well, because you pick four short vol flavors, right? you know, and one guy. So that's what I call fundamental non-correlation. I want to look at what their return drivers are. Right. What you didn't understand what the, do. what the latent risk factor was there that didn't show up in the returns. Exactly. Right. It's, it's in there. It just hasn't shown up yet. Yeah. Um, and so that's an important concept. So you guys are doing that. So you explain the two methods, but you're doing which method? You're looking at it from. So we typically do it at the at the top level, just because it's it's a little bit easier than trying to say, let me flow to the bottom and reweight these. We are very careful at picking the signals at the top, such that we can just equally weight them at the bottom. And that equal weighting is based on the risk, which is your what you mentioned before, the drawdown component, or is it? No, so so again, so let's see like a very, very simple example, um, just to give a concrete drive home here. Let's yeah. just say all we're going to do is be long or short the S&P 500. And okay. so if we're above the 200 day, for example, we'll be long. If we're below the 200 day, we'll be short. We might come up with a thousand different ways of measuring that trend. So maybe it's prior 12 month returns, maybe it's 10 month moving average, maybe it's 13 week uh, moving average over the 34 week moving average. And each of those would basically- 70,000 minute bars or something. Exactly, variance bars, tick bars, volume bars. I mean, there's so many different ways in which this can be done. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna try to, at the top level, ensure that we have the you know, equal weight diversification of different categories. And then each of those would basically say on or off for the S&P 500. And then what we would do is at the very end for all of those on or off, basically one or negative one signals, we would average them together to get our final position. Got it. Love it. So I'm going to come back to this Twitter question here. So when it comes to portfolio construction, 
how does at sea Hofstein, is it Hofstein or Hofstein? Well, the long story there, but it's Hofstein. Hofstein. All right. Uh, how does, that's your Twitter handle. How do you look at the trade-off between trend speed, convexity, and allocation size? I, uh, yes, I saw this question. This is a real <laughs> softball from my buddy, Andrew Miller. All right. Um, yeah. Speed, convexity, and allocation size, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a really interesting part. So we talked about this idea of trend following being mechanically convex. And what we find when we look at different trend followers is that you have fast trend followers, intermediate term trend followers, and slower term trend followers. And um, there's a quant by the name of Arthur Sepp who introduced me to this concept. I, I, it was really very obvious when he, when he showed it to me, but it's something I had never really thought before, which was the period over which you see convexity emerge is inherently tied to the model speed. So for example, if you have a very, very fast trend following system, something that's looking at prior one month returns, for example, is going to change very, very quickly. We would expect to see convexity when we compare that model's returns versus it's the underlying asset over say a two week to six week period. It's got to yeah. be a period sort of centered around the speed of the model. You're not going to see convexity when you look at year versus year returns. Conversely, you've got a very slow model. It's running like a 200-day moving average or a 12-month return. You're not going to see convexity day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. You should not expect that model to perform well in something like a corona crisis, right? It's a slow model. You're, you should not expect to see convexity when measured month versus month returns. But if you start comparing six-month returns against six-month returns or 12-month returns versus 12-month returns, that's where you start to see convexity emerge. I, so like there's this, I think that's the mathematical terms applied to what the investors are feeling of like, wh- where was the where was the crisis period performing? Right. What right. they're really why, saying is, why was there a mismatch between the convexity I expected and the convexity I experienced in the market? Yes, absolutely. And, I, and again, what you tend to find is those very slow-moving models maybe don't have as much bleed necessarily, right? Because you can almost tie that to how quickly am I turning over my, my options or, or how far in the money versus out of the money are the options I'm looking at that I'm trying to delta hedge. Um, and so that very, very fast model is like I'm looking at a, placing a straddle that's probably close to at the money and um, I'm rolling over every single month. And, and so it just becomes very, very expensive and very, very choppy as to you're getting in and out and in and out versus your longer term, slower models, you know, when you look at what actual straddle you're replicating, that straddle tends to be deep in the money at any given time. If I'm looking at prior 12 month returns as my signal, I'm basically looking at where the market was 12 months ago and saying, that's the straddle I'm trying to replicate. And at any given time, that can be pretty in the money in either direction. And so I'm not likely to make any changes in the short term. So you're not necessarily going to get as whipsawed but your expectation is also the signal's not going to change as fast. So you wouldn't expect to see that convexity emerge over a very short period. Um, so there's this inherent trade-off between speed and convexity that I don't think investors give a lot of thought to, particularly as it relates to the type of crisis they're trying to protect against. And it, particularly as the more retail-y they get, right? If they're just buying the AQR managed futures mutual fund and thinking it's going to perform when, you know, in a down 4% month in stocks or something. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Even, even something like Q4 2018, you know, the the question is, okay, 
you had a three month sell off, but you're looking at a trend following system. Most trend following mutual funds are going to be in that intermediate to longer term horizon. You can't look at a three months and expect convexity. You need to look at six, nine, if not 12 month rolling periods. And I think, again, these systems are more designed for a 2008 or 2000 to 2002 than they are for a March 2020. And then the big question is whether we ever see that type of move again or whether it's been fed, put it out or, or whatever reasons. You know, people holler, trend following is dead. There's too much money in it. There's this, there's that. So my opinion is it can't be dead because, as we said, it's mechanical. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? Are, are those days over? Well, <laughs> this is a tough one. Um, I mean, I, so I'll start with by saying one of the reasons I like trend is because of that that split between mechanical convexity and the premium. Is the premium gone? I don't know. It's hard to measure crowdedness in strategies like this, especially where trend following is such a broad category that trying to figure out, I mean, the dispersion in returns, and you probably know this better than anyone else, the dispersion in manager returns is so wide, it's very hard sometimes to say that they're even in the same category. Right, Right, what do you- Like Crable, put in the managed futures category and they have 6,000 short-term intraday trading models that they're doing. So really nothing to do with trend following. Right. Um, and so it's, so it becomes tough to say, okay, is it really getting overwhelmed? I think Eric Crittenden would say, who we were talking about earlier, Eric would say, well, look, this market is still dominated by hedgers and maybe they come in and out and maybe they're harder to sort of distinguish now because they're using banks to execute their flow. But at the end of the day, so long as they want to hedge, then I should earn a premium by taking the opposite of their trade. So if prices are high and they want to short, then if I go long, I should be earning a premium. So as prices go up and I follow that price up, then I'm earning a premium for selling them that insurance. And so trend following is inherently the insurance strategy in much of the commodity complex. I think it's a really interesting argument. I think we do have to consider though the um, question of crowdedness and are there better ways in which we can measure it. But I still think that that mechanical convexity aspect of trend following makes it a really interesting diversification play from the way portfolios are traditionally constructed, which are just inherently mean reversionary driven. That's all rebalancing is. You're selling your winner to buy your loser. And so if you're that is all you're doing, there may be benefits in including a system that does the exact opposite. Agreed. And that, to my argument always to that is like, do you, this move we had in crude oil, right? We went from 50 to negative 37, even ignore the negative part, even if we went to 15, like that's the kind of move these things catch. And that's the kind, do you think moving forward that that move is eliminated from possibility? Like it seems impossible. I sort of look at it as saying what could cause autocorrelation? Um, there are a couple of things to me that can create autocorrelation in markets. The first is that the market just doesn't sort of see the fractal nature of, of economic solvency, right? And the situation we're in today is it just the market is not adequately pricing the way in which businesses are dominoes to each other and that we might end up in a situation where businesses default and that causes other businesses to default. And so you get this slow rolling recession that becomes sort of economic gravity to the market. The other way, which I, I think we saw was more of a 2008, is more of a solvency-driven crisis. And I think yeah. a solvency-driven crisis is one of those that remains, um, excuse me, a liquidity-driven crisis, credit credit and liquidity-driven crisis. It remains yeah. one of those that 
it's, it's out there. I mean, that's exactly what partially happened in March as you started seeing massive margin calls. Firms went under, positions got liquidated. Um, hedgers were, were having to put on massive hedges. Uh, vol players were, uh, people who were, who were sensitive to volatility were having to force de-risk. All of that stuff creates autocorrelation in the market that can potentially be exploited. It's just a question of how far and how fast. So March, we saw it happen very, very quickly. I think August 2008 was more of a, a rolling situation. And I still think those rolling situations are certainly possible. The, the question you brought up about the Fed put at the end of the day, I think brings us back to more fundamental questions of if the Fed has ultimately eliminated left tail risk, why would we ever expect equities to give us a return above the risk-free rate? Yeah. You know, right. if, there's and- no, if there's no risk, why is there any reward? So then the question becomes, well, if there is a reward, is it because the risk is ultimately that the Fed could one day fail, that that is the ultimate tail risk that we need to think about? And I don't have the answer to any of that, but I think it's worth going back to first principles and sort of trying to think about. Yeah, and I think a global macro approach would say like, well, the Fed put doesn't exist on all currencies, on all agriculture markets, on all energy sectors. So right. you can have these moves that will, by definition, affect those other things. So the you know, even if the Fed put is always there, it can only go so far as well. Absolutely. Uh, I had some other questions here. We're like taking a request from Twitter here. I love it. Oh, but, no, uh, that's, that's not good. It's a dangerous road. We won't do yeah. them all day. And it's, we're not live. So how's that possible? Um, but I wanted to say, do you guys do any research on what the other players in trend are doing? In terms of very specific players? Well, maybe not just in general. Like my view is that to right, this convexity mismatch and people were sick of the bleed. And so a lot of the firms went to, I'm going to add some long bias. I'm going to stretch out the, the look back because yep. then there's less carry and there's less noise. And they, so those things, when I looked over the short term, right, from 2010 to 2015, long bias and longer term outperformed uh, neutral stance and, and shorter term. So I think a lot of these guys shifted. And it almost by definition, that's made the short-term crashes less apt to be captured. So there's a little yeah. uh, style drift kind of stuff baked into there as well. And, and questionably, a little bit of reflexivity too. I, yeah. I do wonder. Um, I do wonder with the mass adoption of trend following post 2008, how much of those firms were really forced to go longer term in nature just to put that capital to work everyone had stayed shorter term, um, the market impact may have been much larger. And so they, it just might've been a more natural bleed. So the, the answer is, okay, how do you deal with more capital? Uh, well, you have to slow down your system and trade less. And so you're not creating as much commission issue and you're not creating as much market impact, which inherently pushes you towards uh, convexity at a, at a different time horizon. Um, so I, I've, I've seen that, like when you look at sort of the SG trend index and you try to correlate it to different trend speeds, it does seem like everyone has slowed down quite a bit. And so the question is, um, does that mean that trend is less effective as that speed? Does that mean there's more crowding? I still don't have answers there. Yeah. Or to your point, like who cares? That's the, that's the one model those guys chose or the tilt those guys choose, use an ensemble and choose all right. the tilts. Right. And yeah. A, and an individual. An individual can still go out and find a short-term manager, right? They're they're out there, so you can say, okay, I I, I know most of the market might have shifted towards intermediate and long-term. Let me buy some some broad market exposure, and then I'm going to go make sure I, I partner it with a short-term trend follower. 
Uh, all right, I'll ask one more. The uh, from at economic pick. I don't know oh, if no. you know him. Yeah, I I know Jake. Jake. All right. Best strategies to park your capital and when equities equities are in a downtrend besides cash or bonds. So uh, he knew what I was gonna. He knew what I was gonna spot. answer. Um, so this is a really interesting one because <laughs> my personal view is you go to cash. I, when you start, and, and this isn't, a lot of people would might say something else, but when you see negative trends in equities, I prefer to go to a decorrelated asset rather than take on any basis risk of trying to profit or taking on um, sort of that negative correlation, trying to profit from an actual short selling in equities. I think short selling in equities has proven to be incredibly, incredibly difficult. I think um, the nature of those markets are far more volatile than you get with positive trends. I think in those types of markets, you are just trying to preserve your capital. Um, and so I, I don't particularly like going short equities when you see negative trends, or certainly I don't like just doing this sort of opposite trade, that when there's a negative trend, you blindly go short. In those mandates where we do have shorting, we tend to take very specific profit targets. So once we go short, we say, if the short gets to this level, we're just gonna take it off and go to cash and, and take our profit and, and sit there until a positive trend comes back, rather than try to ride a short all the way down, because we think it's just far more difficult to manage trend following in those type of market environments. Um, Jake might be referring to, you know, what about going to some other types of positions like long ball or gold? I think what you tend to see is in a true Bitcoin. Bitcoin. I think what you see is, and you saw this in March, is even something like treasuries, which are typically a flight to safety asset or gold, sort of right before March 23rd, you just had margin calls everywhere and you had forced liquidation and even those assets aren't safe. So anything that can be sold will be sold. So my view is if you don't have to hold anything, don't hold anything. Um, as the crisis gets deeper, there may be some positive convexity plays if you wanted to start nibbling. Right, so in 2008, you might look towards things like high yield bonds. Uh, I know Jake is, is a huge fan of, of some levered closed end funds that might represent a great opportunity for positive convexity. But if, you're, if your goal is just pure preservation of capital, I think it's hard to beat short-term US treasuries for that, for that need. And what are your views on the ability of US treasuries to provide that flight to safety in, in the future at this zero bound here? So this is another really interesting one. Um, the question becomes, if you know that treasuries are going to be a hedge for US equities, should treasuries have a positive premium any longer? Right. I mean, that's another just interesting fundamental question. If we expect- You could almost say the past 30 years have been the, have proven that out, right? Like right. as it's become more and more of a flight to safety, the yields have come further and further down. Right, so the question is, can it, can it provide the same protection it has in the past, given where rates are. I will, in financial markets, never say, no, it can't. Certainly there could be a market environment where from where rates are today, they could plunge negative and given you know, duration on tenure, you could get plenty, plenty of participation. But when you compare prior crises where the market had to fall hundreds of basis points, uh, I think you're talking about going to very, very negative territory. So um, is, is our longer dated treasuries, is, is the juice worth the squeeze? Um, again, I, I think you just sort of, if your goal is pure preservation of capital, I think very short term US treasuries are probably the safest place you can be. I would say from a 
a classic managed futures program that would just go long bonds in a crisis, right? They're going to, yep. I don't think that basis point move matters because they're going to size up because the volatility is much slower. Right. So they should make the same on a 15 basis point move that they used to make 15 years ago on a 200 basis point move. But to that point, when, when your margin requirements go way up, or you start yeah. to and you have to start to liquidate. I think that's going. If, if talking about a sort of a market structure perspective and things that have changed versus twenty years ago, that can create some real market structure issues. If every single managed futures player is massively levered long treasuries at the same time and margin rates go up and everyone has to liquidate. Yeah, and I think the other problem there is it was great as not managed futures, but overall, like yeah, I want to have some treasuries as a crisis alpha hedge kind of thing. That's great when they're paying you two, three, four, five percent or something. When they're paying you zero, or you're paying them, do you really want it as that, as that hedge, or do you look for something else that might have a little positive carry or, or right. something else like that? It's an interesting piece. Um, great. The uh, the last one, jokingly here, was uh, hold on, my phone just turned off. From a. Uh, Mike Lambris at Mike Lambris. Why yep. are you so good at what he does and what's his favorite snack to eat while doing so good? <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm that good at what I do, but uh, what's my favorite snack to eat while I do it? Definitely. Uh, if, I'm, if it's a cheat day, peanut M&Ms for sure. Really? But oh, you, yeah. You were a health nut and then you, you hammer the peanut M&Ms? Uh, well, I, I, I pretend that they're healthy. You know, that dark chocolate plus the peanuts, I assume there, there's some health in there somewhere. You're a coder, like every programmer, coder, quant that I've ever known is like pretty much some of the most unhealthy people I've ever seen. Just like bags of Doritos and like, what'd you get for lunch? They're like fried chicken or barbecue. Like, it's it's hard to be it's hard to be healthy when you're sitting in front of a computer typing all day. Yeah, I like the stories of some of these guys during lockdown are have dual jobs at like Google and Microsoft or something. Some of these <laughs> super high end programmers are like. This is, I'm so good I can do this They're job. They're moonlighting. I just envision them with like two hands, doing their yeah, work with one I hand. I love it. Well, it's it's funny to me, all the all the guys who are used to their sales and trading's job that would have six monitors or something, trying to get that whole thing set up at home and you're seeing these home setups and it's like, you know, you, you need to have it. Like you need to be able to see the markets, but it's so funny seeing these huge monitor setups on these like really tiny desks that weren't built for it anymore. Yeah. The, uh, my neck has started to go cause I never, I didn't bring my monitor set up home. I just have my laptops. So you're constantly in the yeah. prone neck thing, but whatever, I'm getting old. So just wanted to ask quickly, all this stuff and 30,000 models would be no problem. You said for the computers and whatnot, what are you guys using any machine learning or AI to kind of process all of these different data points? Uh, so I would say both yes and no. There are machine learning techniques that we utilize um, and, and ideas that we've stolen from machine learning. So uh, we might use something like uh, subset resampling, uh, where we will take certain features and, and kick them out and try to rebuild a portfolio. Or if we're building a portfolio of a number of names to try to create stability, let's say there's 20 names in the portfolio, we might kick out five, build a portfolio and then kick out another random five, build a portfolio. Um, so ideas like that, that we've ultimately stolen from machine learning, uh, yes. 
more explicitly things like are we using you know deep neural networks or anything like that at this time no we've we've messed around with random forests um, which I sort of have a, a preference for gradient boosted random forest that sort of stuff um, haven't found a tremendous amount of benefit statistically to justify the added complexity, uh, but it's certainly an area that we have a lot of ongoing research on. How about just for your research and like a brute force approach to like crunching through data and whatnot? I mean, most of that I wouldn't say is machine learning. We're just, after a decade of doing this type of stuff, you just build up a whole lot of different models and algorithms that make yeah. the research process that much more efficient. I can't wait for the near future with just for writing blog posts when the machine just spits out some interesting charts for me and says like, hey, this is pretty cool. You should write on this. That really would be wonderful. I mean, I think what would surprise most people, at least for us, a lot of people comment about the pace at which we're able to write research. I think a lot of that comes back to the systems that my team has built over time for us to be able to rapidly do research and say, okay, this is an interesting idea to be able to quickly get the data, test out an idea and a hypothesis be able to quickly generate graphs and charts and all that sort of stuff um, is something that's been accumulated over a decade. And if I was starting fresh today, it would just be near impossible for me to get back to the working speed I have now. Do, do you ever struggle over the years with like, do, don't teach like that, you know, selling it more than giving away the research or anything of that nature? You know, I, so the research for me actually sort of serves a dual role, which is, you do a lot of research over time and a lot of it goes nowhere, but a lot of it, it doesn't mean it's not interesting. You can learn lessons from research that goes nowhere. And the risk of doing research that goes nowhere and not memorializing it is that five years later you go, I think I did something related to this. What yeah. did I do? And then you go back and try to find the code or the data and it's just not there. For us, the commentaries actually served as a way for us to memorialize everything we were working on. Um, the ancillary benefit, and I certainly will be very upfront about this, is it serves as marketing. People find us, they see what we're working on, they see the thought process behind it. They either really like it or they don't. And if they like it, they'll very often engage with us. And so it sort of allows us to say, okay, let us memorialize everything. It forces us to create a code base. It forces us to create the, isolate the data that we're using so I can go back five years from now and replicate exactly the project I was doing. Um, and then uh, the added benefit of, of being able to show people the sort of things that we're working on. Well, be, I, we've been doing similar approach for way too long now, like uh, 15 plus years, but I can barely have a conversation with people without, oh, we wrote a blog post on that. Oh, you should go see this post we wrote. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's, that's a great point, which is when you're in the asset management game, you spend a lot of time educating on your process and you answer so many of the same questions over and over that you can often say, you wanna, I'm just gonna write a piece on this. And it really helps. You can put it out there and people either come to you pre-educated or for those people who wanna take a deeper dive, you could say, I already wrote a 10 page white paper on this topic, you know, have at. And then when you're done with that, if you want more, I've got another 10 page white paper you can read. Um, so it really allows those people who want to go deep, if you've been writing consistently over time about your process and, and your research and, and your discoveries, it allows them to really go as deep as they need to, to get comfortable. When it's the modern world too, right? Like all the successful companies these days, they prove their worth to you. They give you value for free, Google Maps, 
yada, yada, yada. They give you the value and then they extract something on the back end. So I think like an old school hedge fund or asset management firm would have been like, what was the old Smith Barney? We earn it or whatever, right? Mm. They tell you how great they are and trust me, I'm great. Versus I think new school is just, hey, here, I'm sharing this value with you. I'm giving you value both because it helps me and I believe it helps you. And if you like it, let's do business. If you don't like it, you know, go down the street. Right, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's in a world of asset management, um, we are, I think many people would say we're close substitutes, right? Why would you ever do business with one firm versus another? As a small boutique, I think you need to earn trust. And for me, brand and trust are, are sort of equated and earning that trust over time as a quant firm, I think really means showcasing your work and your thinking. And obviously it has to come out in the returns of the portfolio as well. But every day it's just one extra day of return. So the question is, what can you do to help really enhance that trust and show people the evolution of your thinking and how your team uh, continues to build upon the work? That's where I think publishing is really important. I used to joke with people who are like, Winton, you know, it's the biggest trend follower out there. They shifted gears a little bit to equities, but back in the day I'd joke, oh, they have, people would say they have 62 PhDs on staff or something. And I'd be like, yeah, 53 of them are in marketing. <laughs> <laughs> and asset raising. Um, so let's jump over and finish off the pot here with your favorites. Uh, just go through here, quick fire. So going to school in Cornell, favorite Finger Lake. Favorite Finger Lake. I don't even think I could tell you the Finger Lake names anymore. Oh no, uh, Kuka. I can't. I Cayuga. I think Cayuga. I'm going to say Cayuga because I think Cornell was on the Cayuga Lake. Yeah. All right. You never spent time on those. No, you were coding no, I, the video games. Yeah, exactly. Of going out on the you know the the funny thing about Cornell is the week it was most beautiful at Cornell was always finals week, and then you left. So it's like by the time you wanted to go visit the lakes, you were you were gone anyway. You were out. Uh, how about was there any beer drinking? Favorite Genesee beer? <laughs> was there any? I, I mean, yes, there was beer drinking. I was too poor to afford anything though, so I think it was all Bud Lights at the time. No, that was the Jenny Cream Ale is like the That's uh, right. state New York. Um, yeah, state. I think I think my buddies at uh, Geneseo would, would drink the Jenny Cream. But uh, at Cornell, I think it was, I think, I think Cornell was like a Coors Light School. Nice. Uh, I was, before that time, there was no such thing as Coors Light or Bud Light anywhere in our area, unfortunately. Uh, favorite podcast besides your own? Ooh, favorite podcast. There are a bunch of really good ones out there. Um, I mean, I think it's, it might be cliche to just say Patrick O'Shaughnessy's, he does a phenomenal one. Uh, our, our mutual friends at Resolve, I think have a great one that they showcase. Um, yeah. They're just How about Bill pop- Simmons, a Boston buddy? You know, I don't listen to a lot of non-trader podcasts. Uh, I'm trying to think of who else. I Top Traders Live is another one that I think is really high quality worth yeah. listening to almost every week. Um, so favorite Boston restaurant? Ooh, um, it just shut down actually. It oh, was no. called Coda. Uh, they had the best burger in the South End in my opinion. Uh, I would say another one that's near and dear to my heart is uh, Vejigantes, uh, which I have no idea whether it's still there or not, but that was a date night favorite for me and my wife. All right, favorite... Uh... Boston actor between uh, Affleck and what's his name? Damon. Damon. Uh, we're going Damon. Yeah, Damon. Yeah. You're going Damon and remembering his name for me. Yeah. 
and favorite Boston sports team? Are you a Ooh, that's guy? you know it's uh, this is embarrassing. I just I've never cared about sports and living in Boston for close to the decade I did, where it just every team came home with a, with a trophy. It's I just was literally annoyed at the parades, which is the worst thing you can say is because <laughs> I was so ungrateful about all the victories. Well, so that's why you don't listen to Bill Simmons. He's he's yeah. just constantly. I will say, hands down, best one to go watch was always the Bruins. If you were going live, had to go Bruins. Yeah, that's a great spot. And um, so favorite Santa Monica activity? Oh, beach. Can't beat the beach Beach. in L.A. Yeah, just going out and spending an afternoon on the beach is is tough to beat. And lastly, uh, well, I got my uh, last one, second to last, is uh, favorite snowboarding spot? Ooh. Um... Oh, uh, it's either Vail, Colorado, or uh, I might go Beaver Creek, Colorado. Okay. You don't go out to the uh, Tahoe or anything closer by? Um, no, I haven't actually yet gone there because I just moved to L.A. about a year ago. My wife is not a big uh, winter activity participant. So this is more when I get to either go with my family or, or friends um, and uh, Vale is one we've been as a as a family. My family has been going out there for a little while now, so it's got some it. it's got some good memories to it too. I'm going to organize an annual like volatility trader. You can come along as well, but uh, I will trip. gladly join. Yeah, we'll get some of these guys out there. Uh, and finally, we ask all our guests' favorite Star Wars character. Favorite Star Wars character. Mm, I'm I, who well who's not gonna say it's either got to be Han Solo or Obi-Wan Kenobi right does anyone say anything different uh this morning I was doing a pod with a guy from Shanghai and he said Jar Jar Binks and I almost <laughs> fell out of my chair so yeah there's there's different for sure I, well you know what the, someone who probably knows Star Wars way better than I do could probably name some like super obscure character that I ha- I just don't even know exists like yeah, I think Meb went with uh, Ahsoka Tan who's like from the cartoon she hasn't even been in the movie yeah there you go i i didn't even know there was a cartoon so <laughs> that's good all right Corey, this has been fun uh yeah it's been a pleasure thank you for having me on yeah sorry we ran a bit late but that was fun episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at RCMAlt.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.